Welcome to the Freedom to Learn podcast, exploring freedom, autonomy and social justice in education. This recording was made at the 2020 Freedom to Learn online forum. My name is Rowan, I'm your host today and I work for Phoenix Education. Um, I'll do a proper introduction a little bit later and this, this event is part of a series of events that we're running as part of Changemakers Lab, which is a two-year program um, run by Phoenix Education, working with young people aged 14 to 18 who are looking to campaign for education reform to better meet their needs and their rights. Um, so there'll be a mix of uh, younger people and, and adults. Um, and uh, we're, we've really enjoyed having mixed events as part of this forum. So everyone's welcome. And if you've just joined us, please... Um, take a moment to introduce yourself in the chat. All right, I think we're probably all here. So um, welcome. So today's event is called Universities and Activism. Um, and we'll be exploring how universities can um, contribute or how they can better contribute to radical change um, in education and in schooling. And we've got an amazing um, uh, group of panelists. I'm really, really excited to welcome and really pleased that you're, that you're all with us today. Um, and I'll, I'll let you introduce yourselves in a minute, um, but just that you know who they are in the, in, within your um, matrix of faces. You've, we've got Freya Acheron, um, if you give us a wave. Martin Mills, if you give us a wave, Max Hope, and Samira Salam, if you give us a wave. All right. Um, I'm uh, Rowan Salim. I'm, I work with Phoenix. I also um, have run a democratic, self-directed children's community in South London, and, um, and I'm a community gardener. <laughs> Um, and I was interested in this in putting this panel together because I nearly found myself in academia. Um, I managed to get three degrees and an honorary one and nearly ended up doing a PhD until I was very lucky um, to heed the advice of my good friend Reva Dendag, who runs Swaraj University, which is a hack on the word university because it doesn't give degrees and works very differently, who said, well, why don't you just do it? And that has stayed with me for a long time. Um, but I also have a lot of respect for, for all the work that goes, that, that happens in universities and the research and the teaching, um, as well as a lot of questions. So um, without further ado, I'll introduce, I'll, um, I'll um, um, pass on to the panel and I'd like to invite um, Max to go first, if that's okay, Max. And um, I'll, I'll uh, message everyone else to let you know the order because I realize we didn't agree that. So um, if I can hand over to Max. Thank you. Thank you, Rowan. And thanks for setting up this panel. I think it's, um, I think it's a really interesting topic. And for me personally, at where I'm at in my journey, I've been um, a grassroots 
worker and activist and I became an academic and I'm actually at the end of September stopping being an academic again so I'm at a really important transition time for myself so it's uh, interesting to be involved in this conversation. Um, I guess for me um, my stance on where we're at with the education system is that for me the education system in this country is broken. Um, it's a one-size-fits-all approach with a very rigid curriculum and an uninspiring pedagogy. There's inbuilt biases and assumptions which exacerbate social justice. It's very testing-focused, prioritises academic attainment over other types of learning, it's inflexible and unchanging, and it disconnects children and young people from the wild world. So there are so many problems with it, um, and that is part of why I got into being an education academic, and I've been an education academic at the University of Hull in East Yorkshire for um, 13 years. Um, but before that, I was a, a youth worker working with socially disadvantaged young people aged 16 to 25, and many of them came out of the school system believing that they were failures. Um, so I spent had spent 10 years working with these young people and I, re I realised after a long time of running education and learning programmes to try and re-engage young people with education that what I wanted to do was to find out what was going wrong in the system in the first place. So why did we have all of these young people, creative, intelligent, inspiring, smart young people believing that they were failures? So I thought that by... Um, getting involved with the university initially by doing a PhD and then by becoming an academic that I thought I could take a bird's eye view of the system and have a look and see what was wrong, um, find some innovative alternatives, find some more creative ways of engaging with young people, um, get published, change the world. Um, so, so being an academic, it, it actually opened up loads of doors for me. I have really loved being an academic. I've travelled many places all over the world visiting innovative and alternative schools. I've done research in some amazing places and I've published journal articles and books. But what I genuinely believe, and this is sad for me, is I believe that I have influenced people who I have worked directly with. So I've influenced students, I've influenced some teachers, I've influenced colleagues. But beyond that, I actually don't believe that my research or my publishing has made a great difference. Um, I think that there's a very, very small number of academics, the kind of star academics, who are frequently um, cited and who are frequently referenced, who make a difference in the wider world, but the vast majority of academics don't. Um, and maybe we'll talk about that a bit and how I, how I feel about that or why I feel about that, but I don't think that I am making a difference beyond the sphere of people that I know. Um, but that isn't to take away from me because I do know that I have made a difference, particularly for, you know, undergraduate students, master's students and PhD students that I've worked with. Um, so <laughs> two or three years ago, I came to a point of realising that my work, my academic work, which is all about freedom, democracy, student voice, innovative education, um, was increasingly at odds with what I was able to do within university. I was feeling increasingly stifled and constrained and unfree, and that I was working with students who were not able to experience very much level of freedom because the university system was becoming much, much more containing. And so I felt as if I was at odds with 
the institution that I was working in. Um, and so I made what felt like quite a big decision to, to leave um, my university role and to go back to grassroots work. So I moved to Devon um, to do grassroots work as a, a facilitator, an educator um, and an activist. Um, but I do still have an identity as a as an independent scholar. I do still do research. I do still publish, but I don't do it attached to a university. Um, so I feel as if I'm getting the best of both worlds. I get to be an activist and educator, and get to do some of the stuff about being um, being an academic as well. Um, so uh, this, as I say, this conversation is really timely for me about what is the role of um, universities and what's the role of research in change making. You know, I'm sure we all have aspirations to change the world and maybe we all have to accept we can only change a very small part of it, but we all have to choose where we put our energy. Um, and for me right now, I have decided that my energy is best put into grassroots work rather than into universities. So that is me. So thank you very much. That's my little story. I will just post um, a link in the chat to my website, which went live last week, which has got lists of my publications and a bit more about my story, so that if you, if you wish to follow up, you've got a way of doing so. Okay, thank you. I'm handing on to who's next, Rowan. Thank you very much, Max. Um, and Martin, if I can yeah. hand over to you, please. Thanks, Rowan. And thanks for the, the invitation to be part of this panel. It's really quite exciting. Um, I'd say Rowan gave us five minutes to do our journey. As by far the eldest on this panel, it seems I might have needed a little bit longer than five minutes, but I'll try and keep it to that, that time frame. I have to say university was really significant for me as a student when I went to university. And it's where many of my ideas were shaped that I still draw upon even now, many, many years after being a university student. And I went to university at a time in the, in the late 70s in, in Queensland, Australia, at a very radical moment or interesting moment in time in Australia where, in Queensland, where street marches had been banned, where a whole range of civil liberties were under threat. And so I was involved in significant student protests, many of those protests, it wasn't unusual for 500 people from the university to be arrested at any one time marching off, off campus. So many of my ideas were shaped at that time by, by that moment, by the Cold War, by demonstrations against US, um, US bases, both in Australia and in, in England. My sister was um, at Greenham Common, the feminist movement through the 70s was shaping the kind of groups that I was involved in. So many of the, the politics of that time became very much part of, of my life. Through, and so the university campus and campus life at that time was really significant in terms of shaping radical ideas. Some of the courses that I did at university also exposed me to ideas that I might not otherwise have um, have, have come across. Things like de-schooling society, issues around um, much of the work that was done at Summerhill, all those things in education were shaping my views of schooling at that time. And I remember doing a course at university where suddenly it was in political science where I suddenly thought, oh, so I'm an anarchist. And that kind of led to me being involved in various anarchist groups and getting and being quite critical of of hierarchies and structures. And so for a long time, 
I was very critical of schooling and was involved in setting up organisations, one of which was that the learning, a learning exchange where the idea of that we would, we would learn outside the structures of, of schooling and universities. But I, so, so that's, and I kept enrolling because, you know, I kind of dropped out without ever really dropping in. And so my sense of being part of, of a community involved in protest was, was great for the time, but I also felt I kind of needed to earn a living at some stage. And I'd enrolled in doing a, the equivalent of a PGCE about three or four times um, and kept pulling out at the last minute because I didn't want to be part of the, the system until eventually I did enrol to, and became a, to, be, to become a teacher. And I loved it. And I loved the, the courses I was doing. I was being exposed to ideas around the Schooling for Capitalist America, um, Paul Willis, um, work of feminist writers in education at that time. And so my university experience, again, was really exciting for me in the thought of becoming a teacher. And as I, as I became um, more involved in, you know, in my courses and practical experience, it started to dawn on me that maybe I'd been just a bit too structural in thinking about schools and the oppressive nature of schools and that the people within the schools could make a difference in terms of how they worked with young people. I was quite fortunate to come into, a te into teaching at the end of of 32 years of a uh, very, very conservative government in Queensland that I'd been involved in protesting about. And uh, that government ended at the same time, was the same time as I came into schooling. And the new Labour government put out the social ju justice strategy for schools and all schools were, most to, were supposed to demonstrate what they were doing in relation to social justice. So it was a perfect environment for me to be going into school. I was involved in setting up both a student social justice group and a staff and student social justice group of which my first academic writings were about. So, so getting involved in schooling and being a teacher, I started to see that there were, I guess, you know, what Foucault would say, cracks and fissures in these kind of dominant discourses. There was possibilities for resistance. And somehow through that process, I was kept on studying because I love loved the, the reading and, and slipped into doing a PhD and haven't really, and, and I took leave from the Department of Education with every intention of going back to a teacher, to a teacher, but I didn't ever go back. So the academic work that I've since done, and, 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 and I guess this will be the, the conversation we have, is like impact and what difference does it make? I think about the work my own experience of reading people's work and the impact that had on me clearly made a difference for me. And many of those people wouldn't know who I was or what difference, you know, they'd made to my, to my life. So when Max makes the comment about, you know, has, thinks she has little impact, you know, I'd read Max's work and thought, oh, you know, I'd love to work. And I know that we, we share a, 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 a mutual friend in Tasmania who, you know, was really affected by Max's work and asked her to come to Tasmania to, and, so, you know, to meet and, and, and affected what's happening in ta Tasmania. So I, I think you'd never really know. And that's the thing about being an academic. You don't know what impact you're necessarily having. And I could say a lot more than that. And, and I guess my... 
I forgot to set my timer. I think my time's just about up. It, it is up. <laughs> so I guess there's lots of things that I would have said that I'm hoping people will ask me questions about and I'll be able to, to draw on that then. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you very much, Martin. Yeah, this, the, the um, event's going to be led by questions from the audience. So if you have any questions that you'd like to um, kind of uh, brew in the meantime, please, um, you can share them in the chat or message me or just get ready to raise your hands afterwards. Um, Freya. Thanks, Rowan. Um, hi, I'm Freya. Uh, so much of what Max and Martin have said really resonates with me. So I'm going to try my best not to repeat what they've said other than just to say I echo it. Um, my sort of journey into an interest in education and particularly alternative education um, really began when I was a kid. Um, I was in mainstream primary schools till I was about 10. And then I went to Summerhill for two years, which was pretty big paradigm shift from the very conventional primary school that I've been at beforehand. Um, and I learned a huge amount from being there. Um, I was then home educated through most of my teens before going back into mainstream. Um, and this kind of like slightly weird journey gave me a, a kind of perspective on, a, on, a, on the range of alternatives that actually were out there and what they had meant for me. Um, and subsequently I got interested in teaching. I've taught and worked in education spaces in a variety of settings from alternative democratic schools to pupil referral unit. Um, and what I think frustrated me first and foremost was how there was all this talk about how to reform the education system from all quarters in society and a lot of buzzwords, particularly around words like democracy and empowerment, but very rarely were people actually involving young people and students in those conversations. Um, it seemed to me that like, someone once told me this analogy and I've subsequently shamelessly stolen it, which was that teaching young people citizenship or democracy skills without actually giving them the opportunity to practice it firsthand is a bit like trying to teach someone football without ever giving them the ball. And that really stayed with me. Um, but I became increasingly concerned um, as I began exploring the existing work out there and having conversations with people by how a lot of alternative education practice was getting kind of written off on the basis that it tends to exist a lot of the time for reasons around access to funding in spaces that are largely accessible to people who can afford to pay fees. And this seemed to be leading to a sort of discourse, particularly around, among a particular faction of social justice campaigning for disadvantaged young people, which was saying, no, actually the way to achieve social justice in education is to get people straight A's and get them into Oxbridge. And that is increasingly what we're seeing with these sort of no excuses schools and academies, which utilize this extremely draconian approach to um, achieve a particular version of educational success. And I became really disturbed by that because it seemed to me that it was saying that freedom of choice and democracy was like a luxury that could only be sort of can take the risk if you are already rich or privileged. And that meant that there's a whole swathe of society that's sort of not being given access to those practices for their own good, apparently. And that just struck me as a really problematic and paternalistic discourse. And I thought there must be some kind of false dichotomy going on. Surely we don't have to opt for um, you know, one extreme or the other. There must be a way of integrating democracy meaningfully and still taking account of intersectional issues to do with privilege. Um, so that's kind of where I ended up with my interest in education. Um, and it struck me that I just didn't really have the full range of tools and knowledge at my disposal to start diving into that dilemma and those issues in more depth. Um, I've always had a kind of conflicted relationship with academia. 
on the one hand really relate to what Martin was saying about the stories that have spoken to me and for me academia and academic research at its best is always powerful stories whether that's using numbers or words and I've also been really influenced by the writing of people like Bell Hooks who famously said that she came to theory because she was hurting and I think there are all sorts of people known and unknown whose lives have been transformed and ways of feeling and seeing have been transformed by the stories that are told whether that's in the arts or academia and I think we have to see these things as part of a collective whole different media for expressing human experience so I, I kind of thought to myself, okay, there's a number of reasons why I think a PhD might be valuable. Um, one was that the areas I was, interest, I was interested in were relatively under-researched. Obviously, Max and Martin are incredible contributors and big, big sort of uh, contributors to the world of alternative education research, and I've been hugely inspired by their work, and I wanted to contribute to that in some way. But the other part of it was about me as a practitioner, actually, and wanting to have the time and space not only to tell a story with integrity and that does take time and space but also to reflect on my own practice um, which I think is something that a lot of practitioners find hard to find time for in the kind of increasingly performativity driven targets driven culture that so many of us are forced to work in so it's a privilege in many ways to have the time and space to do a PhD um, which I'm doing at King's College London um, and this kind of feedback loop between research about education and the practice of education is something that's been brought home really powerfully for me recently because alongside my PhD um, probably more of my time actually is spent teaching on the BA social sciences program at King's and Samira is a student from that program and um, she and I and a number of other students from the program recently did a an action research project doing a sort of critical review of our program because um, there are a number of things we're trying to do on that program that are a little bit different to sort of conventional university courses um, and so we've co-written a book about that uh, reflecting on our practice and our experience and it was just in so many ways a, a real vindication of my sort of gut feeling that when research and practice are brought together they can be like, powerfully mutually reinforcing. Now over time so I'll shut up. <laughs> Thank you very much, Freya. And um, that leads beautifully to introducing Samira, who is one of Freya's students, um, who's our uh, final panelist. Hi, everyone. It's so nice to have you all here. I don't know how much I can else I have to add on to Max, Martin, Freya, because I think they've covered everything. But um, yeah, so as Freya mentioned, I'm a first year student studying the social sciences course at King's and I'm going into my second year. Um, for me, I guess most of my education started off in a non-comprehensive state school um, throughout secondary and my A-levels. Um, and I felt like secondary education and A-level education in particular in this country was like really difficult for me. Um, I guess sort of referring back to what Max mentioned about um, a one-size-fits-all approach, I felt that was the case for me. It was, I felt sort of constricted um, and constrained within the system um, and also like back to what Freya was saying about it being very results driven uh, I just yeah it was it was difficult for me and I think the thing that 
I'm passionate about in education is sort of the inequalities and why they exist, particularly with reference to race and class, which is actually what I sort of talked about in our research project with Freya and the other students involved um, and about how we can like rectify these problems while they exist in the first place. Um, just trying to think of what else to say really. Um, yeah. Sorry, this is really short. <laughs> no, that's great. I think it'll be, it'd be really um, useful to bring in that experience as a student in the system as part of the discussion. Um, so thank you very much for, to, for everyone. I'm going to hand over to the audience in a minute. I have two questions, which I think will help to just um, um, uh, help to establish some definitions in a way and, and, and what we're talking about. So the, the, the event's called Universities and Activism. So I want to kick us off with just two questions, one about the university and one about, the acti about what activism is and what activism looks like today. And I, the focus of the talk is around um, how teaching and research and that collaboration can be used to support activists and what kind of links need to be made. But I'd like to um, um, transcend that and ask a, que a question that to clear the air a little bit firsthand. And the first question is, so Audre Lorde wrote that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And the university has been described by many as a colonial imposition and one um, that through the power invested in it trumps other forms of learning and knowing. And across the country, a space as university is seen as epitome of success, which is very much a, um, um, what, what a lot of you're fighting to change within schooling. Um, and... Uh, also across the world, suicide rates soar when exam grades deny students access to the university. So I'd like to invite the panelists to share on how universities with this colonial and power over history can contribute to radical change in our understanding and practice of education and learning. That's open to everybody, um, to whoever would like to answer it. Yes, Max just because I don't like a silence. That's such a difficult question. That is so difficult. And I actually am really interested in what anybody here might have to say about it. But I think from my experience, um, I've only worked actually at the University of Harlow on a permanent contract. Um, I actually would say that I think there, there was or is a really genuine and deep commitment to... Um, to support students, to do courses, to get through courses, to complete courses. Um, and, and actually, there was some real challenge to what we were teaching on courses. Now, I'm not in any way def defending the university system and saying that it isn't a colonial imposition, which is how you, you know, you've described it there. I'm not defending them for that. But I think that there is actually quite a lot of, of genuine desire to, to open them up, to make sure that, that they are accessible. Um, but as I say, I've only worked for one university and I think it's worth remembering in this country that there is a massive hierarchy of universities. We've got those which are known as the Russell Group universities, which are able to be much, much more selective and therefore possibly elitist than some of the other universities, um, which 
are actually desperate to, to get students, to get students from local areas, etc., and to support students to get through their degrees. So I think there is a big hierarchy. So it's hard to see universities all in all in the same group. But some of the other panelists are at some of the top Russell Group universities, so they may have a different view. Um, yeah, Freya. I agree with Max, this is a big and difficult question and I haven't got a fully articulated answer, but I thought I'd give you my immediate thoughts. Um, I'm really interested in this primarily because I've recently developed even more of an interest in sort of abolitionist movements generally, particularly around policing and prisons. Um, and I think there's a parallel in relation to any historical institution with such problematic roots. Um, not least because we know in fact that the university system is complicit in some of the policing that goes on in this country, particularly of black and minority ethnic students and staff. Um, so I'm really, really sympathetic to abolitionist framings of change um, and certainly radical reform, although I know reform is a bit of a dirty word uh, at times. I would certainly like to see any university system that we continue with um, to look very, very different to what we have now, and whether that requires raising it all to the ground and building from scratch or just some seriously radical change from within and without is sort of open to question. Um, for instance, um, I think that in a large number of subjects, exams, you know, before and at university are really problematic tools of violence. Um, and I also um, would really like to see a radical change to the way admissions practices ha happen and the, as Max highlighted, the elitism and hierarchy of the universities in this country as they stand. Um, but I also think that we need to bear in mind the danger of offering sort of reductionist narratives of change that would ask us to choose between change from within and change from without. Although I've always loved that Audre Lorde quote and I use it a lot. <laughs> At the same time, I think history, the history of activism demonstrates to us that change comes in many forms. And one of my favourite writers on this, Rebecca Solnit, um, has written beautifully about the way that change takes so many forms that it is impossible to compare the impact of a campaigner on, a, you know, on the front line and a, and a poet whose poetry may have fueled and supported um, somebody within a system who does good for the people they come into contact with, somebody on the outside calling for change. I think if we can create greater harmony between those forces, that, that is the key, um, rather than creating division between different narratives of change. Um, yeah, so that's my, my initial thoughts. <laughs> Thank you. Um, can I ask you something about um, what you were saying about um, black ethnic backgrounds? Can you just um, explain that again, please? Thank you. Yeah, sure, of course. So, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but um, I know somebody who is, and they were talking to me the other day about the way in which universities have often been complicit in policing students from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, such as passing their details on to security services or the police in certain instances. They also, in a lot of cases, collaborate with um, border control over issues to do with visas. And this is, I guess I was just sort of using it as one example of the way in which universities as institutions are complicit in practices that we associate with other um, problematic institutions that have also been called into question recently through a kind of abolitionist framing such as um, prisons and policing and indeed um, 
immigration uh, uh, agencies. Thank you. Martin, did you want to add something before we move on? Uh, yeah, I, I, I suppose um, it's being covered a bit by, by Freya and, and Max, but, but I think you've got to distinguish between the idea of the university and kind of what's happening in, in universities. Like, you know, you can, you can talk about the neoliberal university and academics are some of the worst in terms of, you know, marketing themselves and competing with others and, and so on. But I think the notion of a place where you engage with ideas, where, where current, and I'm not saying that, you know, the academics have the monopoly on this, but that the role of a university to trouble conventional wisdoms, the, the role of academics to question are really important tasks in a society. And I think that having a place where that is its main function is really important for the well-being of a society. Now, I know that, you know, like uh, I love um, Billy Bragg and he's talked about his, you know, his music, like listening to his music isn't going to change the world. And I think listening to academics isn't going to change the world. And it was great you used that quote, Rowan, from Graham Smith, don't just talk about it, show me the blisters on your hands, that I, that I think academics just talking about it isn't enough. But if I, when I talked about that time, you know, when I was involved in protest movements at university, there were ideas that we were working with that I didn't know were being coming from academics, you know, an academic, and they were filtering through into how we organised and how we, we saw the world. And it's only later that you read and understand that, you know, Foucault was writing about this or somebody, you know, significant was writing about it and it had filtered into your, your actions. So I think the idea of the university is really important as a place of contestation of ideas. And, I, and, and Edward Said talked about it as being a utopian space. And I don't know if he'd say that now, but, you know, but, but the notion of it. So I, I guess I don't want to say throw out the idea of the university my point yeah. thank you very much i'll open it to i'll save my second question later because i think that leads us quite nicely to how how to do it um and Robin. does anybody have any questions for us i think amber had a question amber i don't know if it's a question it was just i was just wondering if we could maybe re return to the point that max made earlier which i thought was really interesting around when we're talking about research and the hierarchical nature between different institutions, um, for me, this is kind of predicated on this artificial distinction between kind of vocational forms of practice-based knowledge. So for context, I, I, I had a Russell Group straight education and I spent four years teaching in a so-called widening participation university the University of Bedfordshire before moving to the OU um, and part of well, the work that we had to try and do was undo all of the negative perceptions of failure that students had learnt from themselves in school and and you know some of our assessment types and the things we did one one of the modules we wrote and created was um de-schooling and in that we got our students to pick and select and create their assessment create their framework so there are those spaces of innovation but they're not always seen or heralded as you know 
best practice because we're at the lower end the bottom end of, of different universities and you know again when we're thinking about research I always found it very difficult because we were on the one hand asking students to talk about and think about their experiences but then we're also asking them to codify that and put it in a in a language that neatly typifies what is a good essay and I just found continuously thinking well are we perpetuating the problem or are we are we disrupting it they sort of and I and I'd just be keen to, to hear what, you, what, what the panel thinks about that kind of unequal, kind of the way we value different, different sources and forms of knowledge and the ways in which that's represented in different spaces. Because I think that that's unique, that's, that relates to, to the whole question of activism and research. Maybe that's too broad, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> that's it. Does, um, would any of the panelists feel inclined to answer that? Uh, yes, Max. Hi Amber, nice to see you. Um, I, I feel really strongly about this, that in universities, particular types of knowledge and particular types of academic research are valued above other types. And um, actually it really disadvantages those of us who are interested in democratic or alternative spaces because the type of research that we do in those spaces tends to be qualitative research based on experience based on stories based on you know explaining something about what is happening in those settings and maybe why it's working or why it's not working and so on and the type of research that is valued within universities tends to be large-scale quantitative which means it's measuring stuff often it's measuring things to do with academic results and so on um, and those of you who don't work in universities may not know that all research is has is, is kind of graded um, for something called the research excellence framework so it's graded in terms of star rating um, about how important and influential it is and it's very difficult to get qualitative research of a small scale case study for example of a democratic alternative school to be rated very highly so it's it's really problematic because the rating then impacts on your likelihood of getting research funding your likelihood of getting promotions etc so it really is a problem um, and I agree with you, Amber, anything that's based on knowledge that comes through experience, I know stuff because I have experienced it. And I can tell that story because other people have experienced it. That type of research is not as valued as other types of research. And I think that that is massively problematic. Thank you. Um, and... Uh, did any of the other panels want to respond also, or we can take other questions? Sorry, my cat has a question. <laughs> so, um, can I ask a question? Yes, please, Vikaya. Um, How are your experiences in like um, universities? How do you feel uh, with like other staff and also other students? Like how? How do students react to you in different circumstances? Did you hear that? So how, how are you, what's your experience like at university with staff and students and how do students react to you? Was that right, Fakayo? Yeah, that was right. Yes, Freya. Sorry, I'm just having a bit of connection issues, so you might not hear me as much. Um, I was just thinking that was leading on to something that was in the back of my head anyway about 
about what Max was saying about research, you know, I was also thinking about research cultures within institutions. Um, everything I say comes with the caveat that I'm not an academic, I'm a PhD student, so my knowledge of how things work in terms of the sort of tyranny of, uh, of the ref and such like is largely derived from, from things people, other people have told me or what I've read. But um, I was thinking about... Uh, and this links into the question about uh, how people react. And one of the things that gives me a lot of hope for change from within, whether it's related to university practice or research, comes actually from comparing my experience of um, teaching and studying at King's from my undergrad experience. Um, I think one of the reasons I was so like uncertain about doing a PhD was because I kind of assumed, kind of unreasonably, that all academia must be like what my experience had been as an undergraduate of the department there. And I had a lot of great experiences as an undergraduate, but I also didn't feel particularly at home there um, academically. Uh, and one of the things that I found really inspiring about working at King's is that I'm very conscious I'm being recorded but for all of the problems with King's uh, institutional ethos and its priorities as a Russell Group Uni and I see all of those problems and I, I get very angry about them um, not least a lot of things that have happened in the last few months as a result of the fallout from the pandemic um, nonetheless I have found in the School of Education a group of people who share a lot of values and a lot of um, criticality when it comes to questioning the norms in academia and the priorities in academia. And what I found from that is a solidarity and a collectivity that I just never felt previously. And I think that that has enabled a whole load of things. First of all, it's given me a very different attitude towards my own work and given me a feeling that I can pursue my own interests and my gut feeling and my priorities. Um, it's also had a huge impact on the way that we do teaching and Samira might be able to say a bit more about this from the student perspective but um, the program that I teach on um, is more different than from my undergraduate program than I could possibly imagine um, and so in other words um, I think that so much of how people feel in a space is determined not only by those structural components that Martin mentioned earlier you know the, the, the structural facts that make up that environment but also what people are doing within it and how much they're pushing against it to find the margins for change the leeway for change and when enough people are singing from the same hymn sheet on trying to push the boundaries and do things differently i think really meaningful things can happen and precedents can be set um yeah sorry i know i'm going around the question a little bit but but that's that's uh, that's what i was thinking i don't know samira i don't know if you I don't want to put you on the spot but i don't know if you've got thoughts about this relationships and relationship building within universities and just educational structures in general is quite a big thing for me and I think that if sort of like the collaboration between students and staff is strong then I feel like more and more people will feel empowered within such spaces and going back to the question about sort of like assessment practice as well I definitely do think that perhaps like exams for example are sort of deemed more highly than other unconventional um, ways of assessments like on our course for example we have a module called understanding the social world and we also devised a sort of criteria that the students actually made it and that was quite weird to me and the other students but I think yeah I think it's not it is unconventional but I think it's really valuable for us as students as well to sort of think about changing the narrative within education uh, I actually agree with that because like it's good for students and teachers to have a bond 
Because like if students and teachers have a bond, you know, it'll be easier for people to communicate. Because like nowadays we don't we don't really see teachers bonding with students as much, especially like in schools in the UK. Or I'm not sure about other schools, but in like my school, you don't really see teachers and students um, bonding as much as how you see in another school. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting um, point for Kayo. And it, I, I can see from the audience, a lot, lots of people are involved in alternative education or activism in their own right. I'm curious um, if there are any questions from people who are activists um, about how, how that, that bridge can be built. Yes, Bruno. Yes, hi. Uh, actually, I will have 100 different questions for everyone, and I would love to be talking for 10 hours right away, but I'm just going <laughs> to uh, make it concrete. Mm, I don't know, uh, because uh, I'm, I'm still a student, okay? I'm hopefully graduating this fall. I'm writing my master thesis, so I'm still on that side of the, of the well, the, that side. And I'm experiencing something that, for example, in my program, we are supposed to be... Uh, trained to fight against inequalities, fight for social justice, SDGs, all these grandiloquent words that many people use. But then on the practices, we cannot maybe see that so much in real life, right? So there is a big component of educational paradox, if you would like to name it like that. And that creates like a really weird, weird situation because we are being told like, yeah, you have to be inclusive in your practices. But then when the our own teachers are not inclusive on their practices, right? It creates uh, like a dissonance in there. So what do you think from, the, from your perspective and also from the audience, if someone has any idea or experience, what could be done to, to go against that? Because for example, as a student, I've been, active, uh, I've been an activist already for five years. We've been working with student union, student organizations. We've been trying to develop 100 different things, but it just doesn't work because it feels that you are fighting against such a big chunk of something, right? Which maybe it's connected to all these, I don't know, economical things as well and everything. So I don't know if anyone would have any experience or idea on, on, on how to take this at least, at least to pass it to the people who is coming later, because this is not going to change over the night. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> um. Martin, did you want to take that one? Hello? Oh, sorry. No. Um, look, there's, there's several things I've been thinking while lots of different people have been, have been talking, and I was reading some of the, the questions here. Like, so for me, I'm, I've always been very student-focused and always felt like students have to play a role in constructing the curriculum. Um, however... And, and, and I was quite supportive. And so this isn't quite in relation to your question, Bruno, but I just want to raise this, this point as a dilemma, I guess. So I was, a, I was a former head of school and one of my roles was to talk to academic staff whose teaching evaluations were seen as being poor, who hadn't engaged well with the, the students. But one of the problem courses that we regularly had was a compulsory module, which was Indigenous education. And many of the white students 
actually didn't like that course and often gave it quite negative referrals, which then had implications for the academics teaching that course. So, so part of, of so, and that's one of the problems with the mechanisms of, of universities. But I, I think that of current universities. But I guess I guess the point I'm trying to make is that we have to look at how students and teachers interact in universities. But underpinning all that always has to be a concern with social justice and the social just and the and the curriculum. So, Bruno, I've lost you. I can't see where you are in my. Um, in my screen anymore. Oh, there you are in the top right-hand corner. So it probably isn't really a response to your, your question, but it's about how do we make universities democratic? How do we make them student-centred when part of the role of a university is to provoke and is to make, you know, to a certain extent, should be making students feel a bit uncomfortable and troubling their common sense views of the, of the world. Um, uh, yeah, so that was just what was going through my head while we were having those several conversations. Yeah, Sophie. I just wondered what people felt about the sort of chicken and egg situation of trying to change the culture of universities if the whole socialisation experience leading to being the university age has taught a certain definition of what it means to be a student, a certain definition of what it means to be a teacher, a certain definition of what it means to be a learner, a certain definition of what it means to be educated. Because, you know, by the time folk are showing up into the university institution, that's a pretty clear framework that's been internalised. It's clearly, you know, the roles aren't explicitly described necessarily, but there's a sort of shared expectation or whatever that people know what their role is <laughs> in that, you know. And, and it seems to me that universities would have to change if education before that point were, was more children's rights based. Like it wouldn't, the universities it stands wouldn't really be tolerated. So I guess, you know, is it a case that the evolution of higher education can only happen once there's a ripple effect through from the bottom from early years basically up so that people are entering with a different mindset and to try and do things once someone's 18 and they've already internalized all of this is going to be a constant struggle. Yes, Freya. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I really, I felt this quite, quite keenly at times working in higher education. Um, and I think, you know, it's worth sort of saying that there's often quite heavy criticism, or at least I read a lot of criticism, maybe it's just because I'm in the wrong part of Twitter, of teaching in higher education and of universities, quite, quite rightly. But this often obscures, um, actually what Amber was saying, some of the really exciting, passionate, like social justice oriented practice that does exist. And there are so many people out there who believe really strongly that we need to enact change, but they're also up against forces that are larger than themselves. Um, and one of those forces is not only the neoliberal university and all the way it operates and the way it values certain research or practice, but also the wider education system. And I've witnessed, particularly in this last year, since I started teaching on um, the programme um, that Samira is also part of, um, how for some people that unlearning process, particularly around assumptions to do with authority and hierarchy um, and like what, what their kind of like um, role in the community is, has sometimes been quite painful and difficult and it's meant that I might go into a space with full intentions of trying to be as conscious as I can of breaking down hierarchy um, but the people in the space aren't necessarily expecting me to be that way they might be expecting me to be the lecturer at the front of the room 
And that can cause quite a dissonance and it takes time and relationship building and getting to know people to break that down. But there's never enough time. And again, because of the pressures of the university system, these things have to happen in increments. And that doesn't mean it can't happen, but it's frustrating how how much more could be achieved if we had more time to, to, get to, to get to know one another and to try and break down some of those assumptions. Um, but yeah, I think starting with a holistic approach to education reform is, is always going to matter. Yeah, i just respond to that as well, please, Rowan. That, um, um, yeah, your question really resonates, Sophie, and I, it reminded me of a story that when I first started teaching at university, I was teaching on part-time youth and community work courses, and the majority of the students were practitioners who were experienced youth and community workers. They were slightly older than your average university age, so they were 30s, 40s, 50s, and we had the most fantastic engaging conversations in those classes people found it harder to write it in academic English and to turn it into an essay but the actual quality of the discussions and the sessions and the activities was brilliant because people could engage they had experience they could think they could really get involved in a, a conversation then I moved over to teaching undergraduates on education degrees who were largely full-time students who were younger, um, who were probably between kind of 19 and 22 or 23. And the, uh, it was so completely different because the schooling that they had had and they'd come straight from school and they wanted to be directed much, much more. Not all of them. There were always some exceptions, but they did want to be directed. So even asking a question that was around, okay, you, 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 know, you get to choose your own essay title here. You can do whatever you want. There would always be students who said, but I want you to give me the title because you know better. So give me the title and that will get me a better grade. Um, and this then got worse when the £9,000 a year fees came in because each students then came along saying now I'm paying for a good degree you've got even more responsibility to just tell me what it is that I need to do um, and so I think universities are in trouble at the moment I think they really are because students turning up are, are seeing it as I'm a customer and I'm paying for this and you need to give it to me and that and that critical engagement and that thinking and that you know amazing academic autonomy and disrupting the system that we used to have um i think is is really under pressure at the moment youngest age you can go to university did you say mm -hmm. yeah anyone want to take that one don't know <laughs> it's usually it's usually after someone's done um a levels or further education so it's usually 18 or 19 and I think if you have A-level qualifications at an earlier age, some universities will still um, consider you for application. I'm guessing it would vary based on national context, but there are examples of people who are like 15 or 16 going to university in the UK in exceptional cases. Um, yeah, I think it's quite hard because a lot of uni culture is kind of based on um, kind of living independently and stuff like that, or not always, or at least having a sort of more independent existence. And I think it's, it's tricky um, for people sometimes um, if they're like on a massive age gap, but... I think it would depend on your circumstances. Thanks. Can I ask a question? I've got Leilak and then a few, I couldn't see who was speaking. I'll, I'll Sorry, take me. I didn't know how to put my hand up. Oh, there you go. I don't know if um, this question might be hard for you, but um, in your university, do you have a lot of um, communist beliefs? 
it's a good question. Who'd like to tackle that one? Well, I think you have a diversity of beliefs. So you have, you know, you'd have right-wing intellectuals as well as left-wing intellectuals, um, and it depends what you mean by communist. Um, so, so yes, there would be people with communist beliefs, but there would also be people with conservative beliefs as well. Yeah. So, Rowan, I wanted to ask Max a question, but I couldn't find out how to put my hand up. Yeah, go ahead. And then I'll, I'll um, can, can I take, can I take Nalek's question first and then I'll come to you, Martin. Yeah, Nalek. Hi, um, maybe just a, just a, maybe an appreciative comment or a question also, both in two. Um, just, um, I'm just really aware of how important your work is, Max, for example, um, and also Freya, just in the, in the in the bridging aspect um, of things, um, I really um, I found myself in the middle of this conundrum of the what you spoke about the the experiential learning not being um, important or not being on the tick box uh, list that that is important for me to pass modules, for example, and. Um, I've been activisting from within the system for, for a while. And um, today I was branded, finally, I'm doing my, I'm doing my MArch, so um, my Masters of Architecture. And today is the first time when I, I was branded a failure. Um, I failed my first year of uh, MArch um, to them. I think I've, uh, f funny enough, the project that I was doing is about 21st century education. Um, and so I, the, the stuff that I produced and showed was challenging. And also I kind, of, I kind of created my own tick box list and I kind of discarded some of the things they wanted me to show. So they kept saying, this is a lot of depth when they looked at my project. Um, you've, you've really looked at this, you've really engaged in it but your drawings are not finished to the degree that we can take the boxes. Um, so, so yeah, I, I'm just aware of, of the fact that when you write things, um, when you kind of bridge, when there are people who are academics that can bridge the gap between the two worlds that then say, okay, these things are important, let's put them, I don't know how, how you put them on the map, um, and 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 so that is a very tricky territory, and I'm, I'm aware of that. And and also, just the question of mediums. You know, um, what what's the media? What what kind? How can I produce things? And and uh, yeah, the, the problem of production and 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 all of that stuff. But yeah, so so many so many things on my mind. But but perhaps yeah, I wanted to just appreciate the bridging. Um, that once once your name once you have published something in their language in the language of academic speaking then I can reference you in my essay and say she said it's okay if I walk barefoot and say that I've done it um, that that's sufficient uh, sort of knowledge uh, acquiring uh, medium for me to 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 use but yeah so something like that. Thank you. 
I've had a request from Freya to answer that. Um, thanks, Lyric. I wanted to just say, like, thanks for ha like everything you just said, because I think it's really beautifully put. Um, and I, I don't, I think that what you were saying had so many questions within it. So I don't know if what I'm saying is going to resonate or, or with with what you were focusing on. But um, I was thinking about the link to Michael's point earlier up in the chat about like language of research and sort of priorities within research and the connection to higher education practice. And I was thinking about what you were saying about, you know, certain priorities, certain expectations or assumptions being at play in the way things are assessed or the way things are done in practice on your course. And I think this has been said already to some degree, so apologies if I'm sort of repeating, going over the same territory, but my feeling is that practices of, of teaching and learning and collaboration within universities always have an intimate relationship to research culture and to the priorities in terms of research. I've seen it so many times. And I think what Michael was saying in his comment about if we had a more person-oriented, child-oriented, whatever education context we're working in, oriented approach to teaching and learning, surely that would have a huge impact on the way we conduct research and what we consider to be valuable and important. Um, and I think your point about medians as well, like, is really significant. Um, I've been for a long time really fascinated by the issue of accessibility in academic research and I know it's an old trope but I think it's fair to say that too much academic research is inaccessible not only because of paywalls but also because of the way that it's written and the expectations that are placed on writers to use the particular language to gain that credibility that you just mentioned to gain that stamp of approval um, and the work that has always inspired me the most has been work that's gone against that um, and I mentioned bell hooks earlier but I, I think that bell hooks work is such a fantastic example of how academic work can have integrity and credibility and theoretical nuance without needing to resort to the kinds of performatively like unnecessarily complicated language that we so often see in the academy um and um i don't know samira again might have thoughts about this and uh, excuse the self-indulgence but in the book that samira and i were involved in co-writing one of the things we explored was using poetry um to present uh, primary data from our interviews with members of our community um, and we've been kind of exploring those some of those more creative techniques for presenting data and it is getting more and more acceptable it is getting more and more commonplace and it's something that I find really exciting um, because I would actually love to see more of a connection between the arts and academia um, again sorry I don't know if you have thoughts about this Samira because I'm kind of speaking on behalf of our team and <laughs> you're also integral to that oh you're on mute Samira Now, I, I think you need to add joint. Try taking out your headphones. Sometimes mine cuts off the audio when I go on Zoom. Yep. Can you hear me now? Or should I? Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having like connectivity issues. Um, yeah, so with regards to sort of research, I completely agree with what Freya was saying. Like there's a conventional way or you're sort of like expected to use complex language. Um, and within our research projects, so for those, yeah, I sort of cut out, but I'm a university student at King's and I've been working on a research project with Freya and my section was around um, class, race and sort of like critical consciousness and <laughs> I hope Freya doesn't mind me saying this but I I was really scared about sort of using theory as a first year student I found the prospect quite daunting um, I thought I have to write a certain way 
and then I was sort of introduced to ways of like simplicity and sort of like bell hooks writing and it it really made me think that theory is a tool that we can use and it's it's not something that's supposed to be scary um and it can definitely be accessible um it's just we need to sort of change and sort of shift and I think more and more academic writers are doing so now so yeah I do think like bringing in the arts and sort of simplifying academia in a sense to make it more inclusive is something we should be pushing towards um so so one of the questions that we that we have here and that kind of links to this conversation is how to bridge this divide between universities and activists and one and language and the nature of researchers is um is one element that has come up. I wondered if there are any other ideas, either from the panelists or from um, activists or practitioners in the group about what, what bridging that divide might look like. Just, just as I'm listening to everything, Rowan, like I think about any conversation I have around schooling and when we identify various problems in schooling, we always, I always come back to, well, what's the purpose of education? So what is the, what is the, why do we have schools and what's its purpose? And I think we have to have a conversation here about what's the purpose of universities? Why do we have universities? What's their role? What's the work of an academic in those universities? And that has to be part of our conversation and part of our pushing back again. So, because I think that a lot of what's happening in universities, you know, works against what I would see as the purpose of a university. So, and, and that I think is in part of the bridge of, of universities and activism, like in some ways that they kind of go together, you know, like it's, you know, is it being to trouble something, to problematize something? Is that, that activist work? So I guess, you know, and my question to Max is a bit redundant now, but it was about, you know, given where universities are at the moment and, I, and Amber's point about the hierarchical nature of universities is there's you know there's universities and universities of you know like there's many ways some of those universities don't resemble each other and you wouldn't know that they were the same you know it's like Eton and my local you know government school down the road you know like they are you know they don't look alike you know so so what is the role of a university what's the role of you know of a Russell group and, and a university that's, you know, that is often constructed in quite derogatory terms by, by the government. You know, like what, what, what makes them both universities? Um, Roger has asked a question in the, um, in the chat, to what extent, to an extent you have students activists across all unis, the practical way of being a student activist is simply to complete a module evaluation questionnaire. Would you agree? I'm also a university lecturer, and I think to myself that one way that our students are always activists, it may not necessarily be in the way that we're discussing today, but it is a start, is that they can complete their module evaluation questionnaires, their course questionnaires, and they do that on an ongoing basis, and the changes have to be made currently to the module. So by doing that, they are you know, taking on a responsibility of being activists to the extent that they can disagree with the, made, the way the module is running. And changes have to be made. It's the students in London Met, that's where I go uh, to work at the moment, um, that have really the power 
rather than the staff. It's the students that can make things happen quicker than what the staff can. Yeah, Max. Uh, um, I, I don't know anything about your university, Roger, so maybe it's structured differently from mine, but in my university, students fill out module evaluation questionnaires once they've finished a module, and they're then typed up and they're then given to the the lecturer to reflect on to then consider whether they want to make changes to the module next year so for the student who actually filled in the questionnaire it makes no difference because they've already completed the module so in my view if a student wants to change a module a far better way of doing it is to go up to the lecturer and talk to them whilst they are doing it ideally on week one and of course, that's very difficult to ask students to do that because they don't know the lecturer and they don't know whether that is or isn't an appropriate thing to do. So an even better thing is for the lecturer to work out a culture from really early on that says, let's co-create this together. Um, and, and if you can do that over a period of 12 weeks, then changes get built in as you go along. And then by the time you get to the module questionnaires, actually the lecturer should know what they are going to say because they've got a good enough relationship with the students that they already know what the students think about that module. So in my view, if a, if a lecturer does not know what their module has been like until the evaluation forms are filled in, that is a major, major problem. Um, and it's, it's not a way of students being activists. That's okay, could I just come back on that one? Yep. We, we, we have much more of an ongoing process. So... Like you say, the students can come and talk to the lecturer after the lecture at any time. But in addition, we have our, if it's a yearly module, the first module evaluation questionnaire will be halfway through the first semester. They'll be followed up by what we call course committees. So the student representative for that particular module, module can represent the students at the next course committee meeting. So it's an ongoing process that can change two, three times during the year. So in a sense, the students do mould the module in their own likeness as it goes through. The complication is, having made those changes, they'll stay there. If the next group or the next cohort of students want to change it, it will change again. So this is not necessarily an ongoing development towards like a pinnacle of perfection. It can go back, forward, back, forward, depending on the cohort. That's the issue. And, and in your experience, Roger, do students really co-create the module through that mechanism? Is that really what happens? Oh, they do, yes. They have, um, we have a lot, uh, during some of the classes, we give the last 15 minutes, the lecturer goes out the room, the students then talk about freely what they want the representative to say at the course committee meeting. So they have that availability and they do make use of it. And this is, um, It'll go across all the students. So we have overseas students, we have younger students, we have much more, a bigger percentage of mature students, and they all do have an input. Um, I'm making us sound very progressive. <laughs> um, I'd like to, yeah, yeah, Michael. Um, I, I have some very strong opinions about universities and uh, uh, young people and participation. And one of the things I feel is that with all the human groups that are struggling for the rights, uh, they struggle 
for their rights, normally with the assistance of the progressives in the universities in terms of looking at women's history and reclaiming women's history in science and all the others and women's history and then in fighting for their rights. And in terms of black history and reclaiming black history. Uh, so my question is, because when you're just talking about what's happening at universities with the students, you're talking about young people who have had no culture of children's rights. So, and that's the problem is that how are the universities going to support a society in terms of allowing those children to grow up within that culture and history of their own rights. And that's what I want to see is professors like you uh, and academics actually uh, uh, researching the rights of the child in our schools in the last hundred years and throughout the world. And, and, and not just talking about alternatives, but talking about you know, both the, the Clara Grant and uh, Montessori and, 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 uh, uh, yeah, and Froebel and all the others, uh, uh, Sylvia Pankhurst and things, uh, you know, linking children's rights with the general struggle for overall human rights. So why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you trying to get that culture and history out there in the curriculum and in the practice of our schools and especially our state schools? Um, yes, Freya. I think that's an excellent question, Michael, and I totally agree. Um, I think I would perhaps just respond by saying that there are people doing that work. It's just they're not being heard and perhaps there aren't enough of them. And there are aspects of the university system, which Max you know, referred to earlier around priorities within research that place enormous pressure on people to produce certain kinds of research. Um, there are also, I'm also really fascinated by the issues in academia around inequalities in terms of who's considered a uh, prestigious academic. And I'm really interested in the way that, um, you know, exhaustion and burnout that I see all the time in higher education tends to be most evident in the case of people who, ha who have those values and who are trying to enact those values in their practice. And that often means that the time they have to put into research that's going to fit the requirements of the university or to publish like crazy or to try and get a platform is necessarily diminished. Um, I am also just really interested by what you're saying, Michael, about you know, what we need to create these cultures in universities that, that, that are based on children's rights. And I, again, I couldn't agree more. And I think this brings me back to the question that was raised earlier around um, module evaluation forms. So for me, that's a a way of enacting change and a way of students making their voices heard but it's not for me it's not it's not good enough and it's not grounded enough in like a real commitment to radical democracy or community because it's primarily based on a kind of consumerist model of like here is a uh, practitioner providing something now you provide sort of anonymous like one-way often demands oriented feedback and we know from the research that's been done into those feedback forms that they tend to be filled out by a very small minority of students. I mean, it sounds like you've got a much better system in place at your university, Roger, than, than at ours, but they tend to be filled out by a small minority of students, but they also tend to penalise um, black and minority ethnic staff and female staff um, more, more readily. Um, so for me, it's about shifting the culture towards collective discussion. And what I think we need is not just more like feedback mechanisms, but more collective deliberation mechanisms, and meaningful opportunities to come together to discuss stuff. One of the things that we're trying to do on our programme, and again, it's within severe constraints and we've, you know, we're at the very beginning of that journey and it's by no means what we want it to be yet, but is to have course community meetings where we get together as a course community and talk about things that affect the programme. Samira is actually one of our student facilitators for that, so she may have more things to say. Um, but I mean, there are, and we're not alone in doing that, there are these practices going on. But they just tend to be few and far between. Mm -hmm. 
not rewarded by any means. In fact, they're often penalised by the requirements of the sort of university structure as it stands. Um, that's not to be defeatist, but I think that you know academics, like everyone in mainstream education, are operating within severe constraints. And um, yeah, the level of uh, sort of exhaustion and burnout that I see among those trying to make a difference is quite heart wrenching. Yeah, I'd like to. We have ten minutes left. I'd like to um, ask Lucas asked a question in the chat, which I, which I think will be a really good focus for the last ten minutes. Which is, we started with a set of thoughts about impact, and I wonder about how the questions around impacts might connect to the possibility practice of academics creating knowledge with people rather than for and or about them. Um, did you want to say anything else about that, Luke? Um. <laughs> I, I, it's uh, to me it's a big question unfortunately I actually have to go um, right now but I suppose it's to know that it's something that the panel will explore and, and maybe other people and I'll just come back and, and listen to it so maybe more interested to, to, to hear what other people think about that I guess you know moving towards maybe stuff that Freya was talking about to do with practitioner research action research and maybe stuff um, I know Max is involved in starting new projects, which is bringing practitioners together and maybe using some of the tools and knowledge for academia and sharing them with people that generally exist outside that, you know, the academy, essentially. So I just think that sort of seems really interesting to me. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, Martin. Look, I think it's a really interesting question and it's something, so I evaluate a lot of grants and applications that say we're going to do research with people, with teachers, with students, not on teachers and not on students. And my response is always, well, how will you make that authentic? You know, how will you actually do it with? And I think people haven't really come to terms with that. And I th So there are there are issues. So like, you know, there's people here on this group here that I have interviewed, you know, and I will write stuff out of those, those interviews. Now, the only way in which I can do that in my kind of ethical way is to show people what, how I'm going to use their words, how I'm going to, you know, um, give them the opportunity, opportunity to see the, the transcripts. But that's, is that, and I struggle with this all the time. Is that with, you know, is that, is that with enough? And, but at the same time, one of the role of an academic, I think, is to also give voice to people who struggle to have a voice. And so by listening and responding and using their voices in, in work in as an authentic way as possible is ethical. So I don't know you can always do it with, you know, like you, we can try and do our best to be ethical but it might not necessarily always mean joint writing or, you know, people don't have time. So if I go and interview a teacher in a school and talk to them about their work and, and they, they tell me all these, you know, fantastic things they're doing, which I then want to, you know, to write about because it's important that other people hear about that work. That is kind of, is it, is that, that I'm not sure that's with the person, but it's important. I think because I do it, you know, I think it's important work, to get out. So my work around alternative schools has been trying to get a message out to say it is possible to teach kids in this way. And especially kids who have been, so, you know, I interview a lot of kids who've been expelled from school, excluded from school, who talk about how much they love the new school they've go, they're now going to. And it seems to me the message that those kids have got about 
how schools could be different to have, you know, to have prevented them from being excluded in the first place, right, is an important message to get out, which is, can have impact, but I'm not sure it's with the person. So I just think that when we're talking about with, we need to be, make sure we're talking about it in authentic terms. Now, you know, I know some academics who write with the teachers they interview, and that clearly is with the person, right? But they're also writing about other people in the school, you know? And so that's not with those people. So I think we have to think, you know, maybe other, you know, other people who are doing work in research understand this with differently. But that's, but I have a problem with really trying to make with, and it's good it's, that Luke has, you know, caps locked it, because I think that is the important, what do we mean by, by with? Do any of the other panelists want to talk about what with means for them? I wondered, Max, if you wanted to, because you've done a lot of work with and how, 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 that, how that bridging has happened for you. I guess there's something for me about trying to co-create something which doesn't mean that everybody has to be involved in every stage. So I agree with you, Martin, that actually people don't have time or interest or skills or inclination always to write with an academic. But in some ways that they don't have to because that doesn't have to be their role. So there's something about, I think, setting the agenda for research. What are we trying to achieve here? What do we want to find out that it's really important to do with people? And then to design it in a way that feels like everybody is happy with the actual design of it. Okay, so we're going to come into classrooms or we're going to um, talk to the kids or we're going to do artwork or whatever. And then I think there's a question of splitting up the jobs like there is in every project about who is it that does which bit. And actually, um, academic researchers are really good at some bits and not at other bits. And teachers or students or parents are good at some bits and not about other bits. So I think for me, it's about a co-creation of a project as a whole rather than thinking that everything has to be done by everyone. Um, and I think it's about making sure that the research that we do is relevant to people and then is um, accessible to them so that they can read and understand what it is that we're, that we're writing or producing um, so we don't then take control of it and, and turn it into something that doesn't resonate with what they wanted. Thank you. I think uh, we, we've got just a few minutes left. I think Samira um, wanted to come in on that question as well. Sorry, Rowan, would you be able to repeat the question? It cut out a bit for me. <laughs> so so how, how can academics be working with um, um, children, families, practitioners? Um, what, what, does, what can be done to bridge that, to, to be working with and for? I think that's the best way to put it. Okay, sure. Um, I guess with what well, I'm thinking particularly with sort of students and also just the education system in general but um, I was going to just sort of come back to what we have in our course called the um, course community meetings so I guess I've probably said this quite a few times but I think relationship building between sort of like I don't want to call them stakeholders but between people is really important um, and I guess sort of like <laughs> this sort of hierarchy that exists or like misinformation between students, teachers and sort of like parents of students as well. Um, so I think one of the ways is sort of, I guess, making it more, yeah, in essence, sort of building relationships within universities and also things like the course community meetings, like meetings like that actually running in schools, um, I think would be beneficial.
All right. I'm going to wrap up now. Um, I think um, uh, Fukayo had the last question. So, Fukayo, do you want to ask your question before we close? Yes, I do. Thank you. Um, this is directly to... Um, sorry. Okay, so my question is, how do you deal with any um, racist behaviour or any destructive behaviour towards yourselves and also towards different people? It's a big question. Anyone want to try to answer that in a minute and a half? Are you talking about in universities, um, Fukayo? In, yes, in the university, because currently I'm in secondary school, so just to like, know how to deal with behaviour in the university. So how does... Yeah, okay, Freya. I mean, it's a huge question. I'm going to do a really bad job of responding to it, but off the top of my head... There are two things that immediately spring to my mind. One is about coming back to actually what Martin was describing earlier in terms of focusing on structures and then also thinking about agents, people within those structures. So for me, much of the university system is institutionally racist and we need to understand that. We can't just have tokenistic attempts at tackling racism that are about, you know, oh, working groups or panels or conflict resolution. We need to look at the roots of that and why universities are institutionally racist these organizations and institutions including the government love to set up panels to look into this but the evidence is already there lots of people with lived experience have written about this lots of brilliant researchers have written about it better utilization of that knowledge and those stories would really help um but at the, at the same time i think you know obviously we also need to think about the day-to-day -day. and i think um building clear cultures of shared values is really important and i'm getting increasingly educated by a student of mine actually about transformative justice approaches where people have to explicitly sign up to shared values about how we resolve and how we recognize harm and that's a two-way process where it's about acknowledging my responsibility to others um, as well as their responsibility to me and acknowledging that i may be called out um, for my behavior um, when it harms another person and committing to those processes of transforming that harm into learning and into changing our understanding. I think particularly, um, I mean, particularly in relation to racism, I think this is so crucial because of the dominance and, and, and ignorance of whiteness. Um, but yeah, how we do that is obviously a really big question that I haven't got time to go into, go into thoughts on. But yeah, I think those two levels are really, really important. Thank you, everyone, very much for coming. Thank you, especially to our panelists, and everyone's asked lots of questions. Bukayo's asked for a shout out about his passion pitch on Sunday about the change he wants to see in bringing more youth services to his area in London. So, if you're around on Sunday at five o'clock, you can hear him speak. Um, but for now, thank you very much, and I hope there have been some connections between activists and academics in this that can see us moving forwards. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freedom to Learn podcast. For more information about our work, check out our website at freedomtolearn.uk and find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.